The essence of modern socialism and communism is that we can build heaven on earth by rearranging economic systems. Socialism and communism begin with the assumption that human problems can be solved if we can just force the economic structures into the right shape. Whereas the early church trusted God to solve their problems. They weren't trying to force anybody's system into the right shape because they knew that you can't save people by forcing social systems into the right shape. Now I think we can say that, but I want to stop and put a big warning marker on this. Scripture's emphasis here is on the call to radical generosity, which the church today is not yet living up to. We should not lose that in the debate about is Acts 4 socialist. Welcome to the Crossway Podcast, a show where we sit down with authors each week for thoughtful interviews about the Bible, theology, church history, and a Christian life. I'm Matt Tully, and today I'm talking with Greg Forster. Greg serves as the director of the Oikonomia Network at the Center for Transformational Churches at Trinity International University. He's also the author of a number of books, including Economics, A Student's Guide. Today, Greg and I discuss the answer to an important question. Were the first Christians socialists? He also reflects on how believers should think about our global economy, the right way to respond to increasing income inequality in the U.S., and why Christians should be the most generous people on earth. Let's get started. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being here on the CrossFit Podcast today. Thanks for having me. So in our culture today, we spend a lot of time thinking and talking and debating various issues related to economics. And we spend a lot of time discussing some of the ethical considerations related to economics, and, and rightly so. In your book, you note that Scripture speaks extensively about right and wrong economic arrangements. And so that's where I'd like to spend a lot of our time today discussing some of those things. But before we get into that, can you briefly explain what economics is and what do we mean by that word? Well, thank you. And usually when people ask that, what they really mean is what is the economy? Economics is really easy to define as the academic discipline that studies the economy, uh, just like chemistry is the academic discipline that studies chemicals and what they do. Uh, the economy turns out to be a little harder to define. Uh, economists speak of it in terms of our uh, trade-off decisions. So you have $10 and you're deciding whether to buy this thing with it or save it, which would allow you to buy something else later or put it in the bank. Uh, you are spending your time praying and you suddenly realize that instead of praying, maybe you need to be downstairs uh, helping your spouse wash up the dishes to take an example from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Uh, you have to make decisions about how you spend your money. You have to make decisions about how you spend your time. You have to make decisions about how you're going to use all of your material possessions. You have to make decisions about uh, what relationships you're going to build and how you're going to build them. Uh, you, you have to make a lot of decisions that involve trade-offs, where you want both A and B, but you can't have both, because if you go for A, you lose the opportunity to get B, and vice versa. So economists speak of the economy as this vast web of human behavior in which we're all making decisions about, that involve trade-offs, uh, and our decisions affect each other. So if I spend $10 to buy this item, that affects you as the person who's selling it to me, and it also affects a lot of other people as well. Mm. Uh, so, for example, the chair that I'm sitting on right now was made by thousands of different people. And there's actually no one individual person who knows how to make this chair because there's no one who is in charge of the whole process from beginning to end, G from the mining of the raw materials to the construction of the different parts to the assembly to the shipping 
to the advertising that made you aware that this chair was available from a certain place at a certain price, uh, and on and on and on. Many thousands of people made this chair, and there's nobody who could do it alone. So as we make decisions about how to use our time and resources and, and all of our other things, we are affecting each other. And the economy is this big web of relationships that we're in. Now, when people talk about the economy, usually they're referring specifically to the structures that are created for the purpose of managing these trade-offs. Businesses, financial structures, uh, marketplaces, things we create specifically for the purpose of managing uh, the trade-offs that we have to deal with every day. Uh, now, unfortunately, when you say the economy, uh, most people will immediately think of one of two things. They'll either think of uh, numbers and, and mathematical formula, uh, or else they'll think of talking heads on a screen yelling at each other about <laughs> politics. Definitely. Uh, now, numbers are great. I love them. I'm a social scientist, uh, among other things, and I think numbers are fantastic. Um, I also think politics is great. I think the yelling at each other part is something we could do uh, without, but I think public policy debates are great. But this is not the economy. The economy is this lived uh, web of relationships that we're all involved in. Uh, and as Christians, we have to think carefully about uh, how we participate in that, um, in, in that vast exchange and what God's intentions are for it. So economists sometimes joke that economics is, quote, the dismal science. What do they mean by that? Well, uh, essentially, the central message of economics is you can't eat your cake and have it too. Uh, or, as one famous economist put it, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, what he means by that is someone can offer to buy your lunch for you, but you still have to spend the time, so you, you lose the time it takes to eat it. And by accepting the gift, you're uh, implicating your relationship with that person, and they may expect gratitude or want something from you later. Uh, and even, um, even if you set that aside, the person who bought that lunch for you has paid for it. Somebody somewhere paid. Mm. Uh, even if no money was involved, if we were in a barter economy, people's work went into the creation of the lunch. So somebody paid with their labor if they didn't pay with their money. Uh, economics emphasizes the necessity of trade-offs, uh, which is how it got the nickname uh, the dismal science. Uh, and I think from a Christian point of view, uh, this is not something we put into the category of sin. It's something we put into the category of finitude that we are not God. We are created beings. As created beings, we have limits. So I think even in an unfallen world, there would be an economy, there would be economic systems, because you cannot do everything. If you want to do A and B, you can, but, but you can only do one of them, you have to make a choice. And that's just inherent in being a creature rather than the creator. Mm -hmm. uh, so we have to make these economic trade-offs even in an unfallen world. Uh, but obviously, um, while it gets its name from the fact that it emphasizes finitude, I think for most people, economics is the dismal science because they encounter so much sin and wickedness and injustice in the world of the economy that uh, economics is one of the primary places where we encounter the fall. You look at Genesis 3, uh, the, very first, uh, the very first effect of the curse that's pronounced is to Adam, uh, and it's not that he'll have to work, because there's work before the fall. But the first uh, effect of the curse is, uh, in the sweat of your face, you will labor, uh, and the field will produce thorns and thistles for you. So right there, at the very beginning, before any of the other consequences of sin are announced, the first consequence is economic. Uh, that, that work will be toilsome. In other words, that it will involve pain and strain. So work is not a curse. 
but through our work we experience pain and, and stress. Uh, and work also uh, has a, a, a new element of futility, that you can do everything right and still fail. Right? In the unfallen world, when Adam sows grass, he gets grass. When he sows wheat, he gets wheat. But in a fallen world, you can get weeds mm. right? uh, where you didn't sow them. Because in a fallen world, uh, the ground is disorderly. The world is disorderly. It doesn't always give you what you... So you can do everything right and still fail now, which was not the case before the fall. So the economy, our work, is a primary place where we experience the effects of the fall. And that transitions to things like buying and selling, the use of money. I mean, Jesus is very serious, and he means it about the, the dangers involved in the use of money. So um, there's kind of a double-edged answer to that. Mm, yeah. It's a dismal science because it, em it emphasizes finitude. Um, but it's also, there's, there's a lived experience of sin in the economy that we respond to. Yeah, I'm struck by just the way you've described it thus far. The economy is much broader a thing than how you often think about it. And yet money in financial markets and that kind of thing is, is at the center of that. It, it's certainly the thing that comes to mind when we say the economy. And so I, I wanted to actually ask a couple of questions about that as well. A couple terms that I think we often hear about our economy in the United States is free market and capitalism. So I wonder if you could briefly just describe or define those two terms and how they relate to one another. I have stopped using those terms entirely because I find they mean different things to different people and they have so much baggage uh, associated with them. And I find I can communicate much more clearly if I just use other words. Uh, so, for example, I once attended a debate in which two of the most famous uh, biblical scholars in the English-speaking world debated the question, is capitalism biblical? And they spent 45 minutes debating, and it turned out uh, that they agreed about everything except the word capitalism, because both of them were in favor of a basic market structure. They didn't want a government-planned economy. Both of them were in favor of a welfare state, but they agreed that it should be a limited welfare state. Uh, they were both concerned about long-term dependence on welfare programs, but they also supported the existence of such programs. They wanted a culture of generosity so that those who had wealth were willing to use it to help others. Uh, they wanted reasonable but not too much health and safety regulation, and on and on and on it went. But they were debating. The only thing they were debating was whether to call this thing capitalism. <laughs> so, you know, being the kind of guy I am during the question and answer session, I raised my hand and I said, do the two of you disagree about anything, literally anything, except the word capitalism? And they were unable to come up with anything they disagreed about. Now, I'm sure that if they sat down and really thought about it, they could probably come up with something that they disagree about. Mm. But it really shows you how uh, our polarized culture has surfaced secondary and even tertiary disagreements to the, at the expense of identifying common ground in the koinonia, the communion of the saints, uh, that the Christian uh, intellectual tradition has passed on to us mm. in the form of economic thinking. I think, to, to get to your specific question, on the one hand, um, for some people, capitalism means a system of rule of law in which property rights are protected and people have the right to engage in buying and selling and creating businesses uh, without arbitrary interference. Um, whereas for the other side, capitalism is a cultural system dominated by greed and consumerism in which uh, societies attempt to uh, whip up affluence for themselves by telling people to go buy, buy, buy. And I think both of those phenomena are real. And I think in the church, there's broad agreement that we ought to have property rights and the rule of law and that consumer, greed and consumerism are bad and that there's a major problem with a culture of, a culture of greed and consumerism. 
Uh, I think we just diverged in the way we use the word capitalism, which is why I've stopped using the word. Uh, free markets is um, similar. I think it has a, it, it maybe has a little bit more of a specified meaning, but it still has different resonance on the, on the two sides of the aisle. So what I like to emphasize is we want property rights and the rule of law. We want an entrepreneurial economy where people have the freedom to start new things and to keep the fruits of their labor. And we also want generosity. We want concern for the poor. We have to recognize that in the modern world, the traditional systems of caring for the poor have broken down because they were not designed for the modern world. I think we have to recognize we have not yet invented systems that work to help people mm -hmm. in poverty. Uh, I think we have to treat that as both an unsolved problem and an urgent unsolved problem. Uh, and I think if we could stop debating about the word capitalism, maybe we could mobilize the church to deal with this urgent unsolved problem mm -hmm. uh, because the church really should be uh, the first line of defense against poverty. Uh, and I think it's a, it's a crying shame that nobody says, oh, you're in financial trouble, the place you need to go is church. Right, that's on us. We need to. We, the church is the church's responsibility to be figuring out how to help people, uh, and so I, I I feel strongly that that's something. There's an opportunity there to create a powerful witness to the world if we could if we could only mobilize to do it. Yeah, I think when people criticize capitalism, they typically have in mind that idea that there's this iconic scene from the movie Wall Street back in the late '80s, uh, where Gordon Gecko utters that famous line, "Greed is good." And he kind of right. epitomizes this capitalistic mindset. Well, and notice it's a historical narrative. He said greed is what has uh, created all the great accomplishments of the human race. Uh, and for some people, that narrative is capitalism. That narrative is what's distinct about uh, the, the whole cultural system of capitalism. That goes back. So what lies behind this division is there are two scholarly discourses in the social sciences, uh, sociology and anthropology, uh, at least since Max Weber, have used this discourse that capitalism is a spirit before it is a system, and it is a spirit of accumulation. Um, mm. Whereas in economics and political science, capitalism is identified in terms of its legal structures. Uh, capitalism means a system under the rule of law with protection for property and contract rights. Uh, and that's because e economists and political scientists are primarily thinking of capitalism as distinct from communism and socialism, whereas sociologists and anthropologists are primarily thinking of it as distinguished from tradition-bound societies. Mm. And they, they're, talk they're looking at an emergence of capitalism as against uh, historic, tradition-bound systems of economic organization. Uh, but I think you need both. I think you need to be able to distinguish modern economic systems from, from tradition-bound ones. But you also need to be able to distinguish systems uh, that respect people's freedoms from totalitarian systems uh, that, that don't. Uh, and if only we could just shake hands and agree on all that, I think <laughs> we'd get a lot done. Yeah. So I think Christians, when we come to these issues, these questions, these contentious debates at times about the, the proper role of government and how economic systems should be set up and, and function— uh, we often look to Scripture, rightly so, to guide us in that thinking. And I think one of the passages that often is cited is Acts 4, 32 through maybe 37, uh, which records that in the early days of the church, quote, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. I think to a lot of people that sounds a lot of like how they would describe socialism. So my question is, were the first Christians socialists? Right, and the stock answers to that are, um, if you look at the rest of the passage, you see that uh, Ananias lies uh, about having 
this property. And Peter says, well, this was your property, and you didn't have to sell it mm. uh, and bring us the money. Uh, and he says quite explicitly, it was yours, and you were not obligated to do this. So clearly, some sort of property right is still uh, operating. And, and the and reason he was put to death was for lying about, for it, lying yeah. about it, for acting like he was, he was going to do it. Right, yeah. uh, that he held back some of the proceeds. Um, Craig Blomberg uh, has also uh, pointed to linguistic characteristics. Now, I'm no Greek scholar, but Craig Blomberg is. is. Uh, and he's pointed to linguistic characteristics indicating that the sharing in the passage that you've described is a, um, more of a, an occasional rather than constant reality. So when people had need, sharing occurred, not that private property was obliterated because the sharing was a constant, you know, a, a, an always present reality, uh, but that there was, on occasions when it was called for, possessions were shared. But I don't think this penetrates to the root of the matter. I think the root of the matter is this. Um, uh, modern socialism and communism uh, didn't exist in the ancient world and the essence of these systems is essentially eschatological, that we can build heaven on earth by rearranging economic systems. Uh, socialism and communism begin with the assumption that human problems can be solved uh, if we can just uh, force the economic structures into the right shape. Hmm. Uh, I mean, this is why they're built on force. That's their fundamental principle. Whereas the early church trusted God to solve their problems. They weren't trying to force anybody's system into the right shape because they knew that you can't save people by forcing social systems into the right shape. So I think the fundamental difference here, to my mind, is more eschatological. Where are you looking for your salvation? Is it to God or to some political movement? Now, I think we can say that, but I want to stop and put a big warning marker on this. This passage in Acts is not there to supply free marketers with a talking point against socialism. Right. That is not why it's there. It's there to summon us to radical generosity. Hmm. And I think we should be asking not only the question, is socialism biblical? I think we should also be asking the question, do we in the church today practice the radical sharing, even if it's only in, you know, on occasions radical sharing? Do we practice the radical hmm. sharing that clearly characterized the early church and was so important hmm. that Acts highlights it in this dramatic way? Yeah. Right? Acts really emphasizes it. This is important. And so while I agree, uh, and I think it's very important, uh, that we should not use this passage to give a biblical, a sort of paste Bible passages on uh, very dangerous totalitarian ideologies that say we can fix the world if we just had the power to force things into the right shape. Uh, I'm, I'm awake to that danger. I think we should all be awake to that danger. But at the same time, Scripture's emphasis here is on the call to radical generosity, which the church today is not yet living up to. Uh, and I think, I, I think we should not lose that in the debate about, you know, is, is Acts for socialist? Yeah. So you mentioned, you highlighted the important eschatological realities behind socialism and communism. Does capitalism not fall under that same critique? Is there something different about capitalism as a system? Well, once again, it depends on what you mean by capitalism. Um, so uh, stepping back from that word for a moment, in the modern world, one of the primary things we have to deal with is religious pluralism. We now live in a world where societies do not have a shared religion. Uh, what does that mean? Well, one of the things it means is we have to live together and we have to have social systems that do not uh, make ultimate claims or that make only the kind of minimal ultimate claims that it's easy to get social consensus around. Mm. 
and this is simply a reality of the end of the medieval Christendom idea that you can force everybody to be Christian at the point of a sword. Mm. Now, if we're not going to force everybody to be Christian at the point of a sword, you have to have a system of rights in which people are entitled to disagree with each other, and we still live together in peace even though we have different ultimate ends. So my friends who defend capitalism would say capitalism doesn't fall under this critique because capitalism makes no claim to be an ultimate system. It makes no claim that it will save you. It's only a system of rights to protect people from arbitrary interference. It's, you know, the rule of law and property rights mm. is for them the essence of capitalism. And the whole point of that is to protect you from people who want to force their ultimate answer mm. to your on, onto you yeah. instead of your ultimate answer. Now, um, if, if what you mean by capitalism is a narrative like the Gordon Gecko narrative that greed and pride are the source of human uh, improvement, uh, which is also a real phenomenon that we see clearly in the world around us, that is an eschatological vision. Um, and to the extent that people buy that, they are uh, making an eschatological investment, not in a political movement to rearrange economic systems, but rather a different false eschatology, the false eschatology of material success. Mm. Uh, so one of my heroes is Whitaker Chambers, a Christian writer in the 20th century. And one of the things he said is there are two false sources of salvation in the political world. One is uh, violent, one is violence, uh, that through violent revolutionary movements, we mm. can rearrange systems and then everyone will be saved, right? If we could just force things into the right shape. And the other is the narrative of material success, mm. that if we can just forget God long enough to all get rich together, then we'll be saved because everybody will get rich and be happy without God. Uh, and these are, so that's a different kind of false eschatology, but it's very much a, mm. a false eschatology to be, to be awake to in fighting. What would you say to someone who, who hears that but says, it sounds a little bit like you are denying the importance of Christians being active and God using means to accomplish his purposes. So, you know, it's not about uh, my socialist beliefs or capitalist beliefs are not about trying to, you know, bring heaven on earth necessarily, but it's, it's a belief that God has called us to actually do things and he works through people making decisions and creating laws, that kind of thing. I think the shoe is on the other foot. I think the church has been paralyzed by uh, the need to, re this felt need to resolve the debate you know, is capitalism biblical before we're allowed to roll up our sleeves and get anything done? Uh, and which led to my frustrating experience where I heard two of the brightest people the church has to show spending 45 minutes debating when they didn't actually disagree about anything. Uh, and I have seen this time and again. Uh, another friend of mine uh, who uh, was in charge of uh, bringing events to university campuses on um, economic subjects uh, was told at one university, uh, well, if you came in, we would have to have somebody else debate to debate you because we don't do controversial sub we don't do pu public subjects unless we have both sides represented. And then later in the same meeting, they said that they had just had a meeting on human trafficking, and he hmm. said, "Oh, really? Who was your speaker in favor of human trafficking?" Right? I think um, the the need to frame everything as a debate creates an us versus them mentality that divides the church. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that we don't have disagreements. I'm not saying they don't matter. I'm saying we're in a moment right now where what the church most needs is to identify what we agree about and act on it because we have a lot more agreement than we think we do if mm -hmm. we can step back from these hot-button terms 
but you know, you look at things like uh, Brian Fickert and the work he's done helping churches figure out better ways to serve the poor. That stuff could be done on a, you know, at a much bigger scale. You could have churches across the country doing stuff like that. And I think you're starting to see that. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say nothing is happening. Um, but if, if what you're looking for is a sense of urgency to get stuff done, that's what I'm offering. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just think um, the, the, um, the social ethics question has been processed in a way that's paralyzing. And I, again, I don't want to dismiss systematic questions because they need to be asked. But I think the systematic questions can be asked from a standpoint of first, what, what do we all agree about and mm-hmm. where are we not getting it? Because I think that could be the response is, yeah, we all have as individuals and as churches have a responsibility to do more and do things. Yeah, some could say that the, the economic realities uh, facing us today, the problems facing us today and going into the future are so big that we need a bigger kind of interference. We need governmental um, intervention to help address these, and that's where they they would. There's this disagreement on how, and how that. Right. I mean, so one side says the only thing we need is freer markets, and the other side the other side says the only thing we need is bigger government, uh, and they're both paralyzing because neither of them is something you can do. Uh, whereas uh, God's plan A for social action in the church is the local church. Um, and local churches can and should be doing all kinds of things in their communities without waiting for politicians to take the lead. Mm. Goodness gracious, when did the church begin waiting for politicians to get their act in order before the church is allowed to be the church? That's what we're talking about. We're not just talking about having an economic development program for your local community. This is about whether the church is going to be the church, live as the church. I mean, obviously Mm. the church is the church in Christ regardless, but are we going to live into our identity as the church? Well, then we better be doing something. Uh, to bring life to the world, uh, to express our faith. Um, as uh, one person said, if our hands, it was Bonhoeffer, if our hands are not busy with acts of love, then our mouths have no right to preach the message of Christ in its fullness, mm. uh, which is absolutely true. So um, I, I think I, I'm not, so let me give you an example, a tangible example uh, to kind of put my money where my mouth is. Uh, right now, welfare programs in the United States will penalize you financially if you get married. Right, you will lose dollars mm. if you are on welfare and you and you get married. Now, I don't care if you're left wing or right wing. I don't care if you think that uh, welfare programs should be bigger or smaller. I don't think you know if you're more worried about dependence on welfare programs or more worried that not enough people have access to welfare programs. We all ought to be able to shake hands and agree that there should not be a financial penalty for getting married. Yeah. You know, especially if you have children. Where do you think you, that comes from? Oh, because um, if, if if we all agree that's not a good idea, why is it in place? Well, uh, that's, a long, that's a long and complex story, as injustices often are. Um, I think uh, uh, part of it is an unwillingness in, uh, in current political systems to, well, to be blunt, to privilege marriage over non-marriage. Uh, an, un- an unwillingness to say uh, you ought to be married if, if you're having children or we want to support you know, people being married if they have children. So if you're entitled to the same money... Um, if you have this certain number of children and then you get married, you now have an earner, you have an additional earner in the home, so you'll be penalized for your earning capacity. Uh, now, this is complex and um, there's no kind of simple one-step solution to solving this problem, but goodness gracious, we're doing nothing about it. Mm. Right? I've never heard anybody preach on the injustice of this. I don't see act, you know, Christian activists in Washington raising this issue. Uh, but here's a place where left and right ought to be able to totally agree. Uh, 
Mm. Right? I, I can't see any ideological objection from either side that if, you're, if, if you are on an assistance program, you should be able to get married to the parent of your child without suffering a dollar loss. Mm. Uh, we should be marching in the streets with torches and pitchforks over this, <laughs> but we're not. Mm. Uh, I'm not discouraging you know, political activism. I'm not discouraging systemic ethics. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying let's not be paralyzed by debates and leave, and so that we're not able to take action on anything yeah. else. It's a both and, and maybe the priority for us as individual Christians should generally be, we should assume the default would be local action as Christians in our churches. Well, I do think the Christian intellectual tradition points to uh, a sort of preference for local action in the, in the local church. Um, which I think can be broadened, uh, broadened to a general principle that local action is always preferable to uh, large-scale systems that tend to become one-size-fits-all uh, and, and disconnected from those they serve. And that, by the way, applies uh, both to government programs and to market systems, which are also uh, often disconnected from local accountability. Mm, yeah. So one of the most contentious economic issues today that many see as having a very strong ethical or moral dimension to it is income inequality, which according to many is at an all-time high in the U.S. I'm actually writing for Chicago Booth Review, a guy named Howard Gold writes that the top 1% of U.S. adults now earn on average 81 times more than the bottom 50% of adults. And he compares that to 1981 when they earned just 27 times uh, the lower half. So how should Christians think about this issue in particular uh, do you think there is a, a distinct there are Christian principles that should come to bear on this growing income inequality we see in our country? Right, and I think this is often framed in terms of a choice between caring about inequality or caring about whether the people at the bottom are doing okay. Uh, and what if you could take better care at the of the people at the bottom, but the price for that is the people at the top get much, 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 much richer, so that the gap gets bigger? Uh, what choice would you make if that were the trade-off. Uh, and I think, let me step back from this for a moment and say, I think once again, the two sides are bringing different lenses to see this phenomenon. Uh, I think people are more concerned about income inequality as distinct from caring for the poor, because that's the distinction that I'm, that I'm drawing here. If you're, if you're isolating income inequality from the question of how are the poor doing, people care more about income inequality to the extent that they think that people get rich through illegitimate means. Hmm. Uh, and there are, different, there are different factors that uh, contribute to people believing that those who are wealthy are wealthy through illegitimate means. And if people are wealthy through illegitimate means, then it is a primary moral concern uh, that they've accumulated this wealth uh, and gotten ahead of everybody else. This is what you see, for example, in the New Testament denunciations of the wealthy, because in the New Testament world, uh, the wealthy people swaggering around are the Romans, and how did they get rich? They conquered, and they took. Mm. They, they, they stole the land, right? This is why in the Old Testament, wealth is generally treated as a blessing from God to be, that we're to be grateful for, whereas in the New Testament, wealth is viewed as uh, both a symptom and a source of, of evil, uh, because in the Old Testament, uh, the land was given to the people by God, and they had wealth because they had land, which was given to them by God. Mm. Right? In that agricultural economy, wealth comes from land. Yeah. The land is a gift of God. That's a central message of the Old Testament. I gave you this land, right? The, the, I gave you this land. I gave, remember that I gave you this land, or you're going to forget that I gave you this land, and you're going to think you made this money on your own. Uh, 
hmm. uh, which is a paraphrase of a, a passage in Exodus. Um, and in the New Testament, the rich appear as malefactors. Hmm. And the reason the rich appear as malefactors is they stole the land. So if you think that people who have wealth got it through illegitimate means, you're going to be morally offended at, at inequality, even distinct from the question of whether the poor are doing well or not. But if you think that people generally make wealth through legitimate means, uh, then you're not going to be concerned uh, about income inequality. So the example one friend of mine uses is uh, J.K. Rowling. J.K. Rowling became a billionaire by writing a book. Uh, and by writing this book, she entertained millions of people and she mm. sold intellectual property rights to movie companies, which then entertained millions of people. Uh, and that's all she did. I mean, she literally, she just, she, she wrote some books uh, and she became a billionaire. And she did not take that money away from anybody. She didn't steal it. Mm. Nobody is worse off because she's better off. She produced something that had value to people, and people said, yes, I'll pay 20 bucks for a copy of that book. Yes, I'll pay 10 bucks, or these days it's more like 20 bucks <laughs> just for, a ticket, for a ticket to that movie. Uh, but to the extent that you think the wealthy are less like J.K. Rowling and more like, um, let's take another example, uh, Carlos Slim, who is uh, sometimes accounted the wealthiest man in the world these things, or he used to be, I think these days it's Jeff Bezos. Um, but let's say, let's say Carlos Slim, who became wealthy by leveraging personal connections with the Mexican government. Uh, he got telecom con contracts that were, given, that were handed to him by his political connections. He was able to make a ton of money because he knew the right people and because the system was corrupt. Uh, and you know he owns the New York Times because he had this inside track. Now, if you think that most wealthy people are like Carlos Slim and they made their money uh, through corrupt connections with big government, uh, then you're going to be concerned about income inequality. If you think that most of the wealthy are like J.K. Rowling, uh, who made their money by doing honest labor, uh, then you're, you're going to be less concerned about in income inequality. And the thing is, I can tell you both stories. Uh, so here's story one. Uh, in the modern economy, uh, people have more freedom to do uh, what they are gifted to do instead of being required to do whatever job society assigns them, right? In the medieval world, if your father is a cooper, you're a cooper. If your father is a miller, you're a miller. If your father is a carpenter, you're a carpenter. The range of professions is limited, and your personal range of professions is one, Right? And that's if you're a man. If you're a woman, you're consigned to the house and, and you have even less opportunity. Right? In the modern world, people can go find the, you know, the job that suits them. And J.K. Rowling, who came from nowhere, it's not like her parents were great authors. Hmm. Right? J.K. Rowling grew up in poverty, single mom, right? but she had this talent and she was able to produce this product that everybody wanted. Uh, so um, the story, story one is the modern economy has unleashed people to, um, to use their gifts, and particularly as technology progresses, the few people who can do you know, computer stuff really, really, really well can monetize their gifts in a totally unprecedented way. So you get you know, Jeff Bezos and uh, Bill, uh, uh, Bill Gates and, and Steve Jobs, right? The new billionaires uh, can monetize their, their very, very rare capacities. Uh, in a new way. So that's story one is the whole, the modern world produces inequality and there's nothing you can do about it unless you're going to go round up mm. the people with enormous capacities and enslave them. Uh, story two is in, in tradition-based cultures, economies were morally ordered because there was a shared religion and a shared tradition 
and it was understood that there were certain behaviors you were not allowed to engage in. And yes, there was a certain amount of corruption. You know, let's not be naive and romantic. Kings, you know, were often very bad, right? But there were limits to what you could do. And if you push the limits too far, prophets start arising to oppose you, right? And while that doesn't only, that doesn't only happen supernaturally, just within natural human culture, if you push the boundaries too far, people will start, you know, marching with torches and pitchforks. But in the modern world, traditions have dissolved and societies are pluralistic. So how do you hold people morally accountable when there's no standard, right? Mm. We can go knock on the door of the billionaire and say, stop oppressing people, and the billionaire can say, why shouldn't I? And we can say, well, because you know, our Christian standard says that you shouldn't do that. And the billionaire has every right in the modern world to say, uh, well, nuts to your Christian standard, right? Nuts to your hippie God who says we should love each other. My God says the strong should rule the weak. Right. Uh, there, and, and in the modern world, if you're not going to force everybody to pretend to be Christian, you kind of have to put up with that. But it means a much larger level of moral disorder is possible. Uh, and so systems of corruption run amok. Uh, and so I can tell you both of those stories, mm. and the problem is they're both true. Uh, and I think that's why income inequality has created such an irresolvable uh, problem in the church is um, you can tell a story that people are getting richer for legitimate reasons and therefore income inequality shouldn't be something we're offended about. But you can also tell a story uh, that people at the top are less morally accountable than they used to be. And that's also true. This is an unsolved problem. I think to the extent that a solution is possible, it will be if we reorient from thinking the existence of people with a lot of wealth is, is inherently bad, because I don't think that's sustainable within the Christian intellectual tradition. I think the Christian ethical tradition doesn't, doesn't allow for a radical leveling where nobody is rich. Um, but instead reorient to the question, how do we create a cultural environment where those who do have a lot of wealth and power are more morally accountable for how they use it? I think if we could crack that nut, if we could solve that problem, mm. income inequality would be less offensive. Mm. It, it wouldn't necessarily go away, but we'd be less upset about it because we would have a sense that those uh, in positions of wealth and power are accountable for what they do. Mm. Uh, there's a line in Micah uh, that uh, Amy Sherman likes to quote, when the, uh, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Right? So it's not that somebody prospering is inherently wrong, but we want righteous people to prosper. The city rejoices at that because they want righteous people to have wealth and power because they know they'll, they'll use it well. Is it possible that another angle on this question could be that although the individuals who are amassing this wealth are, let's just say for the sake of argument, generally moral people who are not oppressing people intentionally, uh, and yet they are a part of a, a system or a part of an economy, our modern economy, which is so different than it was 100 years ago even, that is just by definition now uh, tends towards the consolidation of wealth. And, and so it, the system itself is unjust, even if individual actors aren't. Right. I think um, you're raising a different question. The question there is, um, is the economic system fundamentally unjust? Uh, and I think... If it were true that people were only getting rich through illegitimate means, that would be a fairly strong sign that the underlying system is inherently unjust. Uh, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I, I don't think that it's all corruption and crony capitalism. Uh, I think particularly if you compare 
the system we have to the major alternatives that exist in the world, which really do run on cronyism. I mean, that's what socialism and communism are, is giving, giving political elites the power to arbitrarily rearrange uh, economic arrangements, which means giving them arbitrary power over human beings and essentially enslaving the populace. Uh, this, th that's you know, a fundamentally unjust system. A system in which human rights are respected and the rule of law is upheld is not going to be a fundamentally unjust system. If people are not using those, if people are using their freedom as a cover-up for evil, as Paul, as Paul says, that's not an indictment of freedom. It's an indictment of evil. Uh, and I think the church should always expect that the world will be full of people misusing their power. It's unreasonable to demand that the economic system deliver to us a world without corruption. Hmm. That's not going to happen. Uh, and the, while I think the, the scripture and the Christian intellectual tradition permit, uh, permit us to sometimes say this system is totally corrupt and we have to overthrow it. So I think there, like most Christian ethicists, I think there is a legitimate right of revolution against tyranny. Uh, I think the emphasis in scripture is that you don't reach that point until the very, you know, that's the end of the line. That's the desperate last resort remedy mm. um, to, to just take up arms against the whole system and overthrow it. Uh, to the extent that you can work within the system, building up what's already good in it and challenging what's bad in it, that's the default mode. So kind of related to that, um, what kind of moral responsibility do we as Christians bear uh, just by participating in an economic system that is at times unethical and unjust. So in other words, are we implicated in the unethical actions of individuals or companies or even governments when we engage in economic transactions with them? Right, and uh, there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. Uh, Christian ethicists have uh, historically distinguished between what's called formal cooperation with evil and material cooperation with evil. Here's what that means. Uh, let's say you sell me a car, right? You've got it. You've got a car. You want to get rid of it. Uh, I pay a minivan, you, more like yeah, it. Uh, let's say I pay you five thousand dollars, right, for that car. You take that five thousand dollars and you spend it on some horrible criminal enterprise, right? You sold your car because you wanted to raise money uh, to buy the materials you needed to rob a bank. Right? You just had to have that cash. Mm. Now, I have materially cooperated with your evil because I provided conditions that were necessary for it. Uh, but I am not implicated in what you did because I don't know what you're doing with my $5,000. And I don't know, uh, you know, it, it's, not my, it's, it's not my responsibility to prevent you from you know, spending the money I gave you for your car on, uh, you know, on bank robbery. So I've materially cooperated with evil, but I've not formally cooperated with evil because my act does not take the form of, yes, take this money and go rob banks with it. You know, mm -hmm. I'm making a venture capital investment in your promising enterprise uh, <laughs> you know, to, to, to rob banks. Right. Um, now, if I know when you're selling me the car, if you say... I'm selling you this car so I can raise money, you know, to buy the material, to buy the guns that I need to have my gang go rob a bank. Suddenly, my position is very different. Hmm. Now, most real-world experiences are not that cut and dry. Yeah. Most. This is why there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this question because most of the time you are not facing a situation where someone comes to you and says, "Hey, will you co formally cooperate with my evil, please?" Yeah. Uh, so, I think 
while there's a there's there's room for a sliding scale, right, where we're more or less concerned in different situations. I, I think that I would, on the whole, be less inclined to emphasize things like boycotts and not, you know, not buying certain things from people, uh, because I just don't think you are that implicated. Like if if I buy a cup of coffee from Starbucks, and let's say I don't, you know, I don't know the owner of Starbucks. I I, I hate to implicate him because I don't actually know anything bad about the owner of Starbucks. But let's say there was <laughs> something. Let's say there was something bad about the owner of Starbucks. I don't know, right? But I'm not actually, like, nobody thinks that when I go buy a cup of coffee from them that I have endorsed everything that's believed by, you know, yeah. that, by, that, uh, by the owner of the company or even by the company itself. That's what I was going to say. It feels like it it's, can be a little more tricky than that when it is the company. And we see this more and more today where whole companies are coming out supporting certain types of behaviors or social uh, projects that some, some of which Christians would perhaps be opposed to. And so yeah, that is like the, the wrestle is, is can we... Right, which is why I want to leave space for mm. that kind of thing to be potentially on the table. Um, but to my mind, um, a, a bigger issue in the daily economic life of Christians is are you spending money on things uh, that you don't need? Uh, I, I think people are... I, I see a lot of people, I, I'm hearing this question from a lot of people wringing their hands about whether it's okay for them to own stock, Right. Uh, but I want to know how much of your money are you spending on things that you don't need? Uh, because to to waste your money on frivolities is not only immoral in itself, it trains you in lack of self-control, which will have wide-ranging consequences. Uh, so I think Christians who have practiced a self-disciplined frugality and have eliminated from their own budgets unnecessary spending on trivialities or on uh, on on luxuries that, that they don't, and I don't want to take that overboard either. You know, Calvin has this passage in the Institutes about monks who compete to see who can survive on less bread and water. Right, so uh, you can take any of this too far. Uh, but if you have practiced a rigorous self-discipline and eliminated everything you don't need, then I think you have standing to ask: Is you know, is my buying this product from this company, you know, compromising my witness? Live your message first. Hmm. Live your message first before you go try to preach it to hmm. other people. Hmm. I mean, this comes back to uh, this comes back to Bonhoeffer's quote that, that I mentioned earlier. You know, that let our hands be be busy with acts of love before our mouths are, or at the same time that our that our mouths are preaching the, the message of Christ. Um, and I, I don't see a ton of people who have practiced this kind of of self denial. Let me put it this way: It's very easy to organize a splashy boycott. Um, but people will look at that and say, what did you give up, right? You just went and bought a product from somebody else. Uh, our witness is effective to the extent that we are willing to suffer for it, mm. right? Which is why I think let's start with self-denial at home uh, because then you're proving you're willing to deny yourself something that you could have for the sake of the Christian message. And when you have suffered for the Christian message, then I think let's talk about boycotts and, and, and stuff like that. I mean... I, I appreciate that this is coming from, in the modern world, we have less moral coherence, right? The, the economic system is not firmly grounded in any comprehensive moral worldview. But that just goes with the end of Christendom. Mm. If we're not going to try and force people to be Christians at the point of a sword, we're going to have a pluralistic world where social systems like the economy are not going to be morally coherent, and that means 
diminished expectations for you know for for what it means that you bought a cup of coffee from this you know from this company or what mm -hmm. it means that you bought a razor from this company or a sneaker or a chicken sandwich. I mean, we're we're getting close to a world where you cannot buy any consumer product without participating in the culture war. I'm not sure that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Well, Greg, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing just some of your own wisdom into how we should think about these, these important issues. As you stress in your book, these are issues that we deal with uh, by necessity on a daily basis, and it's good to have some, some biblical wisdom for that. Thanks for having me. I've really had a good time. That was Greg Forster reflecting on a distinctly Christian approach to thinking about economic issues. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, Economics, A Student's Guide, available online or at your local Christian bookstore. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, which helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the gospel through publishing gospel-centered, Bible-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.